Ready? Okay. My name is Patrice Con Colors. I'm from Los Angeles, California, born and raised. Uh, my name is Rodney Deverlis. Uh, I am from the land of the Mississaugas of the New Credit First Nations, uh, which is known as Toronto, Ontario, Canada. And I am an organizer, artist, freedom fighter, one of the co-founders of the Black Lives Matter Global Network, helped create the hashtag with Alicia Opaltometi. Uh, I am an artist, uh, I'm an organizer, and I'm a co-founder of Black Lives Matter Toronto, uh, which is the first international iteration of the Black Lives Matter movement. And I am so excited to be here today. And I'm Beverly Wang. You're listening to It's Not a Race. In this episode, you'll hear from two leaders of the International Black Lives Matter Network, Patrice Cullors and Rodney Deverlis. I spoke to them when they came to Australia to receive the 2017 Sydney Peace Prize. Now, watching the Black Lives Matter movement take shape online from the distance of Australia, I wanted to find out from Rodney and Patrice about the challenges they faced as Black Lives Matter has grown as a movement and as an organization. I was also curious about what was making an impression on them on their first visit here to Australia. Um, So Patrice, as you mentioned, the story of the founding of Black Lives Matter is pretty well known. Alicia Garza wrote the original Facebook post following the acquittal of George Zimmerman in the shooting death of Trayvon Martin. You added a hashtag and then Opal Tometi um, turned it into a platform. So, I mean, Patrice, with the creation of Black Lives Matter, you crystallized a really powerful sentiment, something that people could really um, hang on to, something that really spoke to what they were feeling. But now that you're four years in, I'm just curious how you now approach as an organization managing and sustaining a movement. What have the challenges been for you? I think that's a great question. Uh, One of the challenges, especially in a movement that really starts uh, with an uprising, is how do you continue to galvanize people's interest in the killing of Black people? And what we've noticed is, uh, especially now that 45 has become the president of the United States, we are seeing a waning interest in the media in particular uh, and focusing on this issue of officer-involved shootings or um, the killings of Black people by law enforcement. So I think um, that's one you know, piece that's really challenging. And I think the other piece that's challenging is after four years of being in something, it's exhausting. You know, uh, Protest fatigue, organizing fatigue is real. And it could take a lot of work to... Um, stay in it, even when you there are no indictments, even though when there's no convictions of officers, even though it feels like there's no accountability. Um, I think as organizers, uh, we have to sort of pull from something else to stay in this fight. So how do you manage that fatigue and what is it that, it, that you, you need to try to, I guess, um, tap into to keep the spark going? Yes, I think one way um, we attempt to manage the fatigue is developing networks and organizations that actually center healing justice. I think part of the work that we've done over the last several years is um, really understanding that the work uh, is traumatic and the issue that we're talking about 
is an issue that has traumatized lots and lots of Black communities. And so we have to talk about and practice healing justice. That looks like um, having people um, do wellness clinics in their neighborhoods, having folks um, prioritize their care, um, making sure that um, we're checking in with each other, making sure that we're getting the rest that we need, and reminding our move that our movement can't just be led by one person, that it's actually a movement that's led by all of us. And when someone needs to step back and take care of themselves, they should be able to, and we should know that someone else will step in and and carry on. Yeah. And similarly, I think that it's really important to be practicing community care in this work. Um, As Patrice mentioned, this work is traumatic. This work is often uh, all the time, day, night. Um, You get calls in the middle of the night or sometimes. And I think that that requires uh, a level of of discipline around community care, around taking space, around ensuring that we're um, taking care of each other through these times. Rodney, I'm curious, what inspired you to found the Toronto chapter of Black Lives Matter? I think that you know for those those of us in Canada were um, are, uh, were fed up with the ways that um, Canada continued to push a narrative of benevolence, continued to push a false narrative that anti-blackness does not exist within our borders. Um, we were inspired by the actions um, and, and the uprising that uh, that happened in Ferguson, and um, and really felt that Black Lives Matter was a um, was a crucial platform for us to address the ways that anti-blackness uh, existed in our in our in our locales as well. Patrice, with so many people connected under the really broad umbrella of Black Lives Matter, I imagine there'd be different views on how to go about your work and how to shape your goals and even on how to come to agreement on your goals. Can you can you talk us through a little bit about what those challenges have been and what are the goals ultimately? Yes, I think uh, in the last four years, Black Lives Matter has grown to a global network that's 40 chapters uh, throughout North America, including Canada. Uh, We have chapters in the United Kingdom and growing chapters across the world. Uh, We've worked with over 100 families who've been impacted by state violence. um, And we've been at the forefront of really challenging um, who gets to talk about uh, racism and how how we talk about racism. Uh, part of the work has also um, uh, looked like us um, trying to figure out what are our next steps, experimenting um, about uh, what are our next steps. Black people are not a monolith. And so as we've developed the global network, it's been important that we see ourselves as decentralized and autonomous and that we are actually operating um, uh uh, underneath these a set of guiding principles that are detailed on our website. But essentially the gist of the guiding principles is that we are part of a global black, black family, um, that we see ourselves as a femme-centered and femme-led movement, um, that we denounce patriarchy, sexism, homophobia, and transphobia, that we see black people at the margins, black people who are disabled, who have convictions, who are incarcerated, black people who are women, who are trans um, at the center of this movement. Movement, and that um, uh, Black Lives Matter is both trying to figure out a, a, a future for Black people, but also trying to figure out how do how do we deal with what's presently um, the reality for Black people. Um, Rodney, there's an idea. I think in the popular mythology that Canada is less racist and more benevolent than the US or Australia. I think especially because Justin Trudeau, the prime minister, is viewed internationally as a progressive sweetheart. I mean, you obviously have a different perspective. What are you seeing 
Yeah, I think that you're spot on in that analysis that Canada really benefits and has historically uh, benefited from uh, the culture of benevolence and this myth of this haven. Um, Canada sees itself as a champion for human rights and um, we, we, our leaders oftentimes purport to, um, to, to, to that image internationally. But we also know real, the, realistic, the realistic reality on the ground is that uh, Canada, which is a fast growing country, uh, uh, we now in Toronto specifically, there are more people of color than there are none uh, that there are white folks like we have surpassed uh, uh, we have surpassed the 50% mark uh, and yet we're still seeing that black folks still have the highest incarceration rates still facing uh, poverty unemployment underemployment lack of access to education and lack of access to services um, so our role is actually to demystify that and we see our role as uh, holding a mirror to Canadian society to really see um, and to challenge ourselves to um, to uh, to moving past that that myth and to really putting, you know, really doing some more systemic changes for our people. Is that kind of like some extra, extra work because Canadians think we're so non-racist that it is. it's an extra barrier? It is. In fact, like the first step of, you know, before we take action, we have to do an incredible amount of education and awareness. Uh, when, we, when we bring up statistics or when we talk about stories, people are often like, oh, I didn't know that this was happening. Um, you know, we consume American culture and it actually... Um, hiding behind uh, this concept of, of America's racial bias is, is a cop-out for our countries. And we actually have to be uh, vigilant to call out our countries on that. Um, let's fix our own backyards before we go out and, and, and try to fix others. I also want to just add one thing. I want to plug a book that mm-hmm. um, Robin Maynard uh, in Montreal um, has uh, developed and it's called Policing Black Lives and it's uh, gives a really detailed history of the brutality Black people have faced inside of Canada and she is um, a, a huge we have we are we are a huge fan of her at Black Lives mm-hmm. Matter and the Toronto chapter has worked closely with Robin and so I just want to like give that plug because I think it's really important Robin Maynard she wrote Policing Black Lives thanks Patrice um, Patrice Rodney is this your first time to Australia. Yes, it is. is. Okay, so (laughs) here we come to the Australian section of the interview. (laughs) Um, Patrice, if you could go first, what surprised you about Australia? Mm. Um, Surprise. I don't know if I'm feeling surprised, Um, but what I'm feeling is um, a deep resonance instead. Uh, I've obviously, you know, where black people exist, I try to learn as much as I can about them. And uh, you can't ever really feel a country and its people without visiting it. I think the first couple days we were here, we visited Madura. And in that visit, met with um, indigenous people of that land and really had a conversation about the impacts um, colonialism and racism has had on folks, specifically around incarceration rates and family violence. Um, I wasn't surprised by those numbers, unfortunately. Um, instead, I felt a deep resonance to build um, a solidar- to build in solidarity with the communities here. Ron, anything strike you or surprise you? I think my biggest surprise is that there are so many similarities between our two countries. I think that um, organizers in Canada and organizers in in Australia have a lot to share and to learn from each other. Um, And we face a particular, the the same culture, you know, this myth and this belief that our countries are the best things ever and nothing grows wrong here while our people are still suffering here. Uh, the, the, The similarities are quite striking. I lied. I did have a surprise. Go on. There are a lot of white people here. (laughs) 
Yeah. I've never seen this many white people in my life, just to be honest. And how do you think that has affected you personally as you're moving into spaces and realizing, oh, my goodness, there's so many white people here? Well, I don't know if I'm worried about me so much as I'm thinking about what it means to um, have your country that has been colonized and the people who've colonized it not respect your life uh, not respect um, who you are. And I think that's the thing that I've heard most from folks is like, not only do the people here, mostly white folks, not understand the gravity of uh, the impact colonialism has had on them, but also the local government doesn't really care and doesn't actually want to have a real conversation about what it's going to take to to stop the ways in which uh, indigenous people are being attacked here. And so that that to me is like what I'm thinking a lot about. Mm. Um, while you've been here in Australia, um, I've noticed the media coverage of your visit to Australia, a lot of it has centered around what the Black Lives Matter movement can do to inspire Indigenous Australian activists. But I want to flip that around a little bit. I mean, what have you learned from them, Patrice? Yeah, thanks for flipping that around. I think that's um, much more interesting to me. Uh, we've said this time and time again. We're not here to tell people what to do in their own country. We're actually here because we feel like this is an important movement exchange. I've been inspired by the resilience. I've been inspired by the um, push to reclaim uh, people's um, ancestral language, to reclaim um, what the reality of colonization. Um, I've been inspired by the conversations. I met with Latoya Rule, who lost her sibling um, a year and a half ago inside of prison, a death in custody. And uh, Latoya shared her story, and not just her story, but her family's story. And it was felt so similar to my own family and um, just feeling inspired by the deep connections that we're making. And I know that this isn't the um, last trip that we're going to be making here. Rodney, what about you? What have you learned from Indigenous Australian activists? Uh, Likewise, I really like the fact that this question is flipped. It allows us to actually reflect on um, the ways that we are actually receiving a lot from this exchange as well. Um, one of the biggest things that strikes me is that there is a big fight here, um, not only to be fighting the state, but to be doing it in a way that um, that prioritizes self-determination. And I think that, you know, that is the indigenous way of, 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 of living and thinking about ways of um, that for us to find the solutions that are set by us, that are guided by us. Um, when we were in Mildura, um, um, we really got to, to learn about uh, systems like the Curry Court, some of the shelters, uh, the women's shelters that exist there, some of the interventions that folks are doing in the justice system, and really thinking about the ways that we can go back to our, our own our own locales and and not just be fighting for governments to be stepping up and doing change or fighting for doing it in a way that prioritizes us to self-determine how how the results are happening, how how they're carried out. I think that incredible tradition of um, of fighting for self-determination um, is something that I see historically running running through the through line of organizing and activism here, and it's something that um, that we'll definitely be taking back. Rodney, um, just to take it a bit further with that, I mean, how does it reframe your work and engagement with First Nations people in Canada? Yeah, I think that generally, you know, our our movement has 
um, has attempted to have deep movement relationship with First Nations folks on, in Canada. We recognize that Black Lives Matter on Indigenous lands and uh, historically our actions have, you know, we've we've done reciprocal exchanges, you know. Uh, we get support in our actions. Indigenous folks come out and put their bodies on the line for us when we're doing things like uh, occupying our, our police headquarters, for example, uh, and vice versa. We come out strong and, uh, and support folks as their fight. Um, I think that, you know, the, the Indigenous folks, First Nations and UAT Métis folks and in Canada have a long-standing history of fighting colonialism and fighting for self-determination. Uh, it's 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 long-standing. There's a tradition of resistance there, and uh, all of us who are settlers, whether forced settlers or colonizers in Canada, um, have 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 that history and that long tradition to think for a lot of our organizing tactics and a lot of our organizing culture as well. You can't be fighting uh, colonialization. You can't be fighting anti-black racism and not be um, centering or not be. Uh, um, um, having deep relationship with indigenous folks, uh, it, 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 it both to me um, are two sides of the same coin. Patrice, is it a bit more of a challenge when you look at the U.S. Um, situation just because of sheer numbers of population and, and what you are dealing with in terms of kind of even trying to wrangle um, the Black Lives Matter moment, uh, movement? Are you able to engage with First Nations people in the same way? Uh, yeah, I think especially when uh, the Code Access Pipeline uh, fight was happening, Black Lives Matter was actually invited into uh, uh, the conversation and invited to the grounds and the occupation grounds. And we uh, went gladly and we sent several delegations and we've been in deep relationship with um, the Lakota people since. And many of us in our chapters have gone back home and uh, reached out to indigenous communities who are doing work uh, locally. In Los Angeles, we work with a woman named Angela Mooney and Chrissy Castro and uh, have really um, decided that part of the Black Lives Matter engagement must also be uh, engaging First Nations people and Turtle Island. Patrice, Black Lives Matter was founded in 2013. Donald Trump obviously elected in 2016. How have you seen the climate of activism change as a result? Uh, we are obviously being targeted as Black Lives Matter. Uh, many of our chapters have been surveilled. Uh, New York, uh, our New York chapter actually is suing NYPD right now uh, because of the surveillance tactics they've used against them. And the FBI has just initiated a report uh, August 3rd, just a few days before Charlottesville. And the report was leaked and it was uh, it's called the... Um, Black identity extremists, it's a new category um, that they've created to obviously um, deter uh, Black activism. And so um, I think during this time when we have 45, which is Donald Trump as president, when we have Attorney General Jeff Session um, uh, and leadership, um, many of our chapters, uh, many of our um, movement leaders are nervous about the impact of a COINTELPRO 2.0. What are your thoughts when you see the comments Donald Trump makes around, for example, NFL players taking a knee? My candid thoughts? Please. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly what I want. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, I want to curse a lot, which I usually do in my own bedroom, you know. I can't believe we're in this moment. I can't believe this is the fight we're having in a lot of ways. 
we were, you know, really making headway, even though we had a lot of issues with Obama's presidency and his administration. Obviously, we could sit at the table with them. There's no sitting at the table with fascism. There's no sitting at the table with neo-Nazis. And so it's, um, it's, it's, it feels like a different playing field. Um, it feels like, um, in some ways, we were not prepared for the level of attacks that would happen even in the first 100 days in his presidency. And we're not even looking at Betsy DeVos. We're not even being, we're not even able to look at all the other appointments that are, are terrible and atrocious and are going to impact us for generations to come. Patrice and Rodney, what does the end goal look like for you? What does success and winning look like for you? Patrice? That's hard to say, and and I'll answer this way. It's not up to me what success looks like. It's really about the collective. Um, it's really about our collective freedom and how we decide as a community. But uh, what I will say is... Um, in you know, 20, 30 years, I want to know that we've been able to reduce the prison population. I want to know that we've been a- we would be able to reduce um, and end the killings of uh, people by the state. I want to see a divestment from militarization and policing in our communities and a, a deep reinvestment um, into Black and Indigenous communities in particular. And I think that that's important. Um, prisons and police didn't exist um, in the ways that they exist now. We sort of have this idea that this has always been our realities, but it hasn't. And so how do we not just get back to the way things used to be, how do we build a new future for Black people? And I think the first place we need to do that is call for the divestment of policing and imprisonment. Rodney, what does success or or the end goal look like for you? And how do you think you'll get there? Do you think you'll get there? Yeah, I see this battle for me as a lifelong battle. I think that it's a it's a life commitment to be um, to be fighting for the liberation of my people. And to me, um, success would look like the moment where I can stop, <laughs> where I can say, you know what, I'm just going to go. I'm going to have my piece of farmland in Haiti, and I'm just going to be eating mangoes and hanging out with my children. Um, Sounds nice. I, I know it does sound nice. And I think that, um, like Patrice, for me, it's really hard to measure what success will look like because I recognize that this fight is beyond my lifetime. Uh, I think that as long as Black folks are emboldened, as long as Black folks continue to have a political home, a political voice through this work, as long as black folks um, have resources and space to resist um, and are, are in community with each other, I think all of those are, 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 are the daily successes that, um, that, that keep us going. Thank you to Patrice Cullors and Rodney DeVerlis of Black Lives Matter. We've put their details in the show notes on our website, abc.net.au forward slash not a race. And I'm always happy to hear from you via Twitter using the hashtag not a race or by email not a race at abc.net.au. You can write a message or send a voice memo. It's really easy to do. Just find the preloaded recorder app on your phone, hit record, start talking, keep it short, about two minutes is plenty, and send it to notarace at abc.net.au. Also, if you like what we're doing, please leave a five-star review for It's Not a Race on Apple Podcasts. It makes a big difference in helping people find us. Or, this is where I encourage community action... Grab a friend's phone, grab your parents' phone, grab your uncle's phone, grab your grandparents' phone, whoever you think will want to listen to this podcast or needs to. 
grab their phone, download the ABC Listen app if they haven't already got it, then subscribe to It's Not a Race. So easy to do. And I expect your screen grabs the evidence that you've done this. Not a race at abc.net.au. Thank you so much. Until next time, bye bye. <laughs> Hang on, wait. I forgot one thing the live show. It's Not a Race is teaming up with Audiocraft for a live event in Melbourne coming up soon on Monday, the 4th of December. We are recording our season finale, and you should come see me, Paola Bala, Santilla Chinkaipe, and Benjamin Law for the diversity panel to end all diversity panels, and then stick around for a musical performance by Yo. Event and ticketing details are on our website, abc.net.au forward slash not a race. Okay, I'm really going now. Hope to see you there. Bye. All right. So this is uh, this is the credits for It's Not a Race. <clears throat> Beverly Wang was your host. Leona Hamid, producer. Matthew Crawford. That's me. The sound designer. Martin Peralta, composer. And Lorena Allen and Andrea Ho, executive producers. 